0: My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. My guest today is Varg Freeborn. Varg is a world-renowned self-defense and gunfight instructor, as well as a lethal force educator and fitness coach. Varg is also the author of the book, Violence of Mind, Training and Preparation for Extreme Violence. Varg's insight into the topic of violence, preparing for it, understanding it, and defending against it, is informed by having been immersed in violent crime for half of his life. Varg grew up in a household where members of his immediate family were murdered or sent to prison. 17 years ago, at age, eight, at age 19, Varg was convicted in a self-defense case gone horribly wrong for stabbing his attacker dozens of times And he was ultimately sentenced to five years in prison. After Varg's release, he went on to become an expert in close quarters combat, gunfighting, breaching, close protection, boxing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And today, he provides professional training to civilians law enforcement and organizations such as the ohio tactical officers association and the alliance ohio police training facility varg's experience with criminal violence concealment as fieldcraft close fighting especially with weapons and criminal mindset are unsurpassed in the self-defense industry in the area of civilian criminal violence education
1: varg welcome to the show Uh, thanks for having me on
0: yeah it's my my pleasure varg i am i'll tell you what i'm i'm heavily impacted by having read your book uh your book violence of mind is it is an eye-opener it is an eye-opener into the the real world and what lurks within that world that most of us are so far removed from that it's 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 almost the stuff of films that we just don't know is real and if we were faced with it um you know i am certain that without your insight without your your education uh that many of us would fall victim to uh, the predators that uh, are out there everywhere, uh, but just for many of us, out of reach until the moment it's too late. Your your book is uh, is a tremendous work that I highly recommend anyone, uh, any and I mean anyone, read. So um, first, I wanted to say that, and I wanted to say thank you so much for coming on this show.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on, too. You
0: know... I'm going to set, I want to set the scene for everybody. So they kind of know, um, so they have some context and they understand your background. Um, So I'm going to quote you from the book here. I endured more beatings before age 10 than most of you would ever receive in a lifetime. I've put dozens of holes in other men and I've had a few put in, have had a few put into me. My family was involved heavily in the illicit drug business. And I promise you, this was the shit that they make movies about. It's amazing I survived all the fights, the weapons, the stabbings, the shootings, the bar fights, the car wrecks, the drugs, the drug deals, and the alcohol. I never set foot inside of a high school. I never went to a prom, never attended a high school ball game. I was raised by wolves and a quite nasty pack of them at that. I was a young wolf. By 18, I had seen more death, cracked more heads, and spilled more blood than most average professionals will do in their entire careers. Varg, can you tell us about your journey as a child, growing up the way you did, and how it led to being sentenced to prison for defending your life?
1: Yeah, sure. And... And first, I'd like to say that the way that that passage in the book comes off, you know, I want to say right up front that nothing that I said in the book and nothing that I will say now is bragging, because I would be remiss to brag about such a tragic uh, experience in such a tragic young life. So in no way am I bragging about things. I am just literally, when I was writing the book, I was just literally trying to convey you know, the, the scope of what it really was that, that I was experiencing and people like me were experiencing in that, in that era and at that time. And so what that amounted to was I grew up, you know, I was born to a single teenage mom. She was 16 when she had me, her mother had died when she was four. So she didn't even have a mother. And my grandfather was a steel mill worker. He had eight or nine kids. And he worked all the time, so they were home alone. This was the 70s, and mm-hmm. so drugs and, you know, everything was really out of control at that time, too. And they just basically, you know, were, were out of control. They were members of my family were uh, motorcycle club members. Um, there were, you know, gang members. There was several ex-convicts. Uh, they were all drug addicts or alcoholics. And half of them were drug dealers. Um, my family was, both sides of my family were involved in, heavy, you know, moving heavy amounts of drugs. You know, so they were moving quite a bit of weight. And um, and it was, it was a very violent atmosphere, right? It was a very, my, my family was very violent. Uh, they were violent with each other and they were violent with other people. And so uh, I was very acquainted with violence early and, and also having to read, people to determine if you might be in danger in a room or not right because you don't know from day to day if somebody's like high on some drug and they turn into a monster which happened frequently um they the person that loved you and like played with you the day before might be the one that tries to like snap your neck the next day because they're out of their minds so Mm -hmm. you always had to read every situation and everything very uh very clearly and very in very detailed ways. And so that, that awareness was grown very early for me. And um, and that's very pivotal to how, you know, I developed my concepts about orientation and what's going into my second book, which we'll talk about later. But mm-hmm. so that, that basically was how I grew up. And, uh, you know, and through my teenage years on the streets and stuff like that, like it just never you know, I I was never a person that like victimized innocent people. Right. So I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself like a criminal in the, in the traditional sense of what people would think a criminal is or a violent criminal. Right. Okay. I wasn't out like knocking old ladies out or robbing people or things like that. But if you approached me in a violent way, or we were involved in some type of transaction that went bad, then it, you know, I would get extremely violent at that point. Um, And so there was several times that, uh, you know, really bad things had happened. And, you know, I had some family members killed and some of my, some of my friends growing up were were murdered and things like that. Um, And then eventually I got into an altercation with three guys. Um, It was an altercation that started with one of them over a period of about six months. And I really honestly tried to avoid this confrontation as much as possible. And I, I had told this guy several, several times to leave me alone. And, um, he didn't heed those warnings. And he showed up one night at a, at a party with, you know, two of his friends and he was extremely drunk, extremely drunk and, and high and just out of his mind. And he tried to coax me into leaving with him because, you know, how drunk people sometimes think they're making sense, right? But they're not right. making sense. Right. Yeah. And so he, obviously thought what he was saying was completely reasonable to believe. And it was not at all reasonable to believe because we were mortal enemies. And the no reason I'd be leaving with you at two in the morning, right. And you're buddies. Right. And so that was going on when he realized that wasn't going to work. He just became very escalated and very angry. And I was trapped. This was the nineties, early nineties. There was no cell phones. I didn't have a car at the time um, with me. And there was, you know, I don't even think the house had a landline phone in it. Like, like you were literally on an island, right? People today don't understand what it was like if you were running around back then. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you were stuck somewhere, like you were stuck. You were stuck. Yeah. You know, there there was no like, you know, something in your pocket to to bail you out. So, um, I was stuck at this this address, and, um, you know, he was becoming escalated. And telling me he was going to kill me and stuff. And, you know, he's like, my family's in the mafia. I'm going to kill you, you know, and this and that. And I'm like, look, man, you need to leave me alone. Like, you need to leave me alone. So, so at this point, I'm witness coaching, which we fully understood back then. Right. Like, so you begin to witness coach, like, and you're trying to lay the groundwork because something's going to happen and you want people, you, you're creating a narrative for for okay. the witnesses to follow. Right. Okay. Um, and I blew that that didn't work anyway, because I blew it later. But at that point, I'm witness coach. So I'm saying very loudly, hey, leave me alone, don't come near me, you know, because when I because when I, you know, when we engage in, in combat here, I don't want people thinking that I just jumped on you for no reason, right? Because I'm trying to get you to stay away from me. And that's really ultimately what I want is this is for you to stay away from me. Mm-hmm for whatever reason, I just did not want to go to battle with this guy. We had fought one time before he was hundred pounds bigger than me. I was at the time, like out of shape, not really, there were times in my life where I trained and, and that wasn't one of them, unfortunately. Um, and so he basically got me cornered. And the way that I perceived it going down was like this, his two friends disappeared And then I noticed that they had backed the car up to the back door of the house. Now, he was pushing me, you know, with pressure through the house to the back of the house. And I kind of was putting together what's going on here is that they want want me in that car, regardless of how this goes down. And this was a time when, you know, uh, uh, one of my best friends, uh, a kid named Pat, had ended up. Um, they found him floating in, in a lake, a local lake with a couple bullet holes in his head, right? And nobody ever knew who did it, that he just came up dead one day. And it was a tragic because the guy was like the most nonviolent, likable, cool guy you could ever know. Um, and so my point is, is that, you know, when someone at, when when some drunk and high people at two in the morning are saying they're going to, they, they want to put you in a car and, and they're going to kill you, you, you take it serious because you know, your uncle, like my uncle was beaten on his couch, taken out into an orchard and shot to death. Right. Uh, a best friend of mine shows up in a lake with, with holes in his head. So this isn't is something that you're going to say to me and I'm going to be like blowing it off. Right. Cause I'm taking Boy. it very serious at this time. And so, and it was like, we're at 93 94. Um, Youngstown Ohio was per capita murder capital right? Like it was extremely violent at those times, right? So that was, that was when this was happening 1993, 1993, 94. And so for context, it's a violent time. You know, there's violent things going on. You know, personally, people have been killed and things like that. And so when somebody says that, all right, now we're in a very serious conflict. So now I'm, now I'm calculating that we're going to take this to a very serious level here now. So I, I yell a couple last times to the guy. Don't, don't touch me. Don't, come after me. And I back up into the last room. That's when I look out, I see the car. And I just realized I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm stuck here. And there's three dudes, right. And two of them are outside, but they could be inside very quickly. And so uh, I yelled to him one more time. He come in the room. I said, don't touch me. And he came after me and he pinned me against the wall by my throat. And that's when I drew my knife out and I began to stab him. Mm-hmm. and I went to work on his uh I started in his chest and I worked my way up his his left chest into his left neck and then he went to a clinch with a full clinch with me and when he went to a full clinch I was reaching over his back and stabbing him in his back um and then we worked we worked that clinch for quite a while I, I'm not sure how long it was you know these things seem like they take longer but it's seconds you know and um it seemed like it went on for qu- quite a while but Uh, we get, he starts to try to spin me off of the wall and when he does, he kind of goes lower and then I work up off of his back into then the right side of his neck. Mm -hmm. So now I've stabbed him in both sides of his neck and in his chest and across his back. Um, and so eventually he, he reaches the quit and the, the, the life just starts to go out of him and he goes limp and he falls backwards. And when he fell backwards, he's bleeding out of like two dozen holes, and uh, I'm completely soaked from my chest all the way to my boots. I'm completely soaked in blood, like like I jumped in a pool of blood. It was that it was that much blood, mm. and um, and he and he fell backwards, and uh, and he looked up at me and he gurgled and he said he said I'm sorry, and uh, apparently I, I was so. You know, in such an anger state at that time that I looked down and and I said, "Die, mf'er." You know, and and of all the times, of all the hundreds of times that I said, uh, quite literally, dozens of times that I said, "Leave me alone, don't come near me." What do you think the witnesses remembered in court? That. <laughs> yeah, they, my, they they remember okay. me saying that. Yeah, so of course. So that was uh that was a big mistake right like that that was but i was caught up in the heat of the moment and i this guy had put me in a position where i had to what i thought is kill him and um i was very angry about the whole thing you know so i was very angry with him that you're gonna now you're gonna tell you now you're gonna say you're sorry after we went to this level when you could have just easily walked away from me and i wouldn't have bothered you you know right. now you're now your life and your soul is leaking out of your knife wounds on the floor and you're gonna tell me you're sorry now it was a very angering thing right right and so, uh, you know, I went out and basically, I told everybody. Like his friends were like really freaking out. Like they wanted to kill me, but they also didn't come near me, right? Right. Because obviously at this point I mean business and I've demonstrated that. So yeah, if you you know if you want some of this, there's more of it. You just come on over here and get it. Is if not, I'm gonna walk out that door and wait for the police to come. And so that's what I did. And the, the people parted like the Red Sea and I went straight out the door and I sat there till the cops came and, uh, and they took me to jail. Obviously I got charged with attempted aggravated murder and I was facing 25 years, um, at 18 years old. So I go through a little bit, about a year of court proceedings and things like that. And then end up, um, Scraping together with my family like eight thousand dollars, and paid an attorney to strike a deal and took a plea bargain. Okay, which is another thing I talk about in the book that you know you over ninety five percent of all cases end in plea bargains, right? So, um, it, it's a very like they they throw the entire kitchen sink at you because they want you to take the faucet, right? And so that's what you're going to do almost every time because you don't have $50,000 for a jury trial, you know. Right. So um, so I took the deal and I got a, a two to five in prison and I did the whole five. So I did the, the complete five years. Uh, so at age 19, 19 years old, 135 pound kid, I entered the adult penitentiary system and spent five years there. So... When
0: you were in prison, you said in the book that I read books voraciously on every subject from religion and philosophy to politics and psychology. And at some point, I realized that I had reached the end of the glorification of my own violence. So, Vorg, how did you reach that conclusion when statistically you were assigned, sealed and delivered into violent criminal activity for what was, you know, What would have been the rest of your life, but somehow um, you come to this epiphany. How did what sparked that that moment uh, to reject uh, the lifestyle that you were living and the the
1: glorification of violence? You know, honestly, I just think that. I had always been wired to be a family type of person and wanted that as a kid. Like I wanted a, a normal father and I wanted to do the things that I seen other families doing. And I, you know, and I always wanted that. Okay. So I think that that stuck with me really hard. And when I went to prison, the first couple of years of prison, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty out of control. You know, and you gotta be, I mean, you have to, you, you have to become, you know, you, you either try to disappear and become invisible, which very few people can pull off well, or you become savage, you know, or you become a victim, right? And it is very, you have very few choices about what, what role you're going to play in there. Right. So, so I became pretty savage, you know, and I, and I started, that's when I discovered um very hardcore weight training. I was very fortunate to enter the prison system during the, the, the glory days we'll call it like where there still were free weights and weight piles outside and like it was still like a like classic traditional penitentiary like you would picture it right as i understand it today that's changed a lot but it used to be where you'd go in and there were like these gigantic scary looking jacked guys on the weight pile just staring at you like they were going to eat you And, you know, that was the atmosphere. And so I joined that atmosphere and I I was trained to reach that level, you know, physically and mentally. And it was very, it was a very fortunate thing because it introduced me to uh, programming and studying and researching and working hard for something and then getting getting the, the reward and reaching goals. Uh, just like I I said, we read books on every subject. Like one of the things that we did was, would have every book from like Weider's, um, you know, encyclopedia of bodybuilding principles and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography, like super squats was a big one back then. Right. Like, and so we'd have all these books and then just every, every month you just try to get books and read as much as you could and learned about periodization learned about, you know, um, just everything about that subject you know Mm -hmm. and and that led to getting big and savage and strong and being kind of scary myself and then that gave me the space to think where I wasn't I didn't have to be so on guard all the time so I had the space to think at that point and then when I started thinking I was like you know um this right here doesn't go far you know this is where this ends like because you either end up dead or in prison And that's where all the tough guys, that's where all the real tough guys are. Mm -hmm. All the real badasses are either dead or in prison. And, you know, and I say that saying, you know, meaning that at some point in time, you stop and you you change your life. You go and I don't care if you were like a special operations soldier and you did some super badass stuff over there. Eventually, you stop doing that stuff, and you become a businessman or a father or a husband, or you know. But you can't do all of it forever because it only ends in a couple of different ways, you know. Right. And so that's what I came to the realization of um, that. You know, I had done everything. I had conquered everything. I had experienced everything. I had nearly killed someone. I'd I'd been you know stabbed myself a couple of times. Prior to prison, I'd been involved in you know situations where there were shootings and there were, you know, uh, just extremely violent things and, and I had experienced all of it. So there was no reason to continue to do it. I just reached a point where I was like, this, this is old now and mm. it's, it's time to stop. And that was it. So I thought that I wanted to have a family. I wanted to be a kind of be, you know, a family guy and create a family I never had. And so that's what I tried to do when I left prison.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, an amazing turnaround um, from where you were headed. And it's such a stark contrast between, say, your first 25 years and then the second half of your life, because you, you end up devoting yourself to teaching citizens and local law enforcement um, fight training, fight conditioning, gunfighting, violence education. So I'll quote you from the book. I have been fortunate enough to train with some of the best gunfighters in the world. I have trained under and worked for national level SWAT trainers, U.S. Special Forces veterans, Russian Spetsnaz, and many more. My work in the defense industry has granted me access to closed law enforcement training like breaching, executive protection, and shoot house courses, for law enforcement and military only. I hold certifications to teach SWAT level full team close quarters combat and have been approached to train at tactical officers training events. So how, how and why did you end up taking that path? So I understand the, you know, the epiphany comes, you realize that this is a dead end, you want to be a family man one day, you want to have your own family, you want to have a different life. But it's interesting that yet, you still stay in this, this area that you've been immersed in just, you know, now you're wearing a white hat, not a black hat any longer, right? So, so tell us why you decided to go from being a wolf to someone who trains others to fight wolves.
1: Because no matter how much you try, you cannot deny your nature. And if you do, if you try to, it's going to make you sick. And it, it, I believe made me sick after a while of me. I spent a lot of my life when I got out of prison, you feel dirty. You feel like you have this big red F on your forehead that everyone can see. And even though it's irrational, you feel like a dirty person. That's because they, they make you feel like less than everything. And You can be denied, you know, I don't know how many times it was denied jobs, denied places to rent. Like it is completely 100% legal to discriminate against a felon in every possible way in this country. It is legal and often encouraged to do so. And so things that they could never get away with doing to a Black person or an Indian person or you know, uh, someone because of their sexual preference or something, they can totally get away with doing it to a felon. And so they make you feel terrible anyway. And so I spent Mm -hmm. a lot of years hiding who I was. And for many years, I would work with people or work in jobs or do things where people would know me for several years and never knew I had been in prison, never knew I was a felon, never knew anything about my past. And I essentially was living incognito for years and... I was living someone else's life, basically. And in the background, I'm still running this little bit of this other side of me. I'm going to boxing gyms. I'm going to fight gyms. I'm, I'm in the gym still, you know. And uh, around like about five years after I'm out, I started to kind of get back and be like, you know, okay, so I'm going to bring a little bit of it back. So I became a personal trainer. And started working in the gyms, and then before you know it, I was full time in the gym life and fight gyms and you know weight training and things like that. And that kind of gave me some expression of it, but it wasn't until I had went through uh, a couple of you know a couple of bad marriages and and things like that, and I had went through a couple of things personally in my life where I was like, you know. I have to just own my story. And so in 2016, I decided I'm like, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to break the story and I'm going to tell the whole freaking world who I am because I'm tired of hiding and I'm tired of people being like, I'm all, like I would go to work at a job and then I would be always afraid that somebody was going to find out about me and then wield that over my head in some kind of power. And so right. I took everyone's power away and I took control of my story. And I told the entire world my story. is who I am. I'm a felon. I'm a violent person. I've been an extremely violent person and this is what i know about these things you know and so with that the training world opened up even more to me and i was very fortunate to get pulled in by some law enforcement organizations that saw the value in what i knew and wanted to train me up on their side to understand their mission, their mission and their problems better and so then i got pulled into the industry i went to work for one of the big, at the time, one of the big industry players in terms of uh, equipment and gear uh, manufacturers. Okay. And through that, that sent me to work, you know, and I would, get, now I was getting paid to go to police level training for product development and things like that. And so I was accepted into, for example, um, breaching school, mechanical, thermal, and ballistic breaching school. is was like a week long where they send officers to go and learn how to breach. So you're breaching everything to breach a, a building, a fence, a perimeter, whatever you need to do to get inside of a structure or a place, all the things that you need to do, tactics, defense, offense, and equipment, right? Right. And so that and shoot house training. And then I went through the the full multiple different places too, but I went through the full spectrum of you know CQB work and high risk, uh, high risk warrant entries. And dealing with those type of problems, I was able to go on the go on training missions with teams and several different teams I've worked with, guys from, you know, Metro, Nashville SWAT, which is a full-time SWAT team, and then you know, guys from other departments where they're like borrowed part-time SWAT team guys. Like so I got to see all the differences and how the different teams work, who's who's really good, who's not. And understanding these things from the other side of it too, because I'd been essentially on the other side of the wall, right? So I could see it from the other, from the guy who might be in the room's perspective, because there were many times growing up Mm -hmm. that, you you know, houses were getting raided and stuff like that. It was something that you were aware of and you knew about, right? And there were things like, you know, um, hit like my family growing up had. A hidden grow room in the basement and it was it was hidden through a, a false paneling wall that was off of a wall that didn't have any windows in the basement so depth perception would be very difficult from being inside to outside because you would there's no visual cues knowing right you're missing four feet of room here you know so so knowing stuff like that i'm able to go into those situations and see kind of what's going on on the other side of it um to give me a really unique perspective, but. I really just was looking to round out my own knowledge so that when I was able to teach, I could teach from a, a more a, a well rounded, more knowledgeable perspective all around. Like, not just from a criminal side of it, and not just from a guy who's, you know, was a cop for 10 years and he's teaching that because there's always huge gaps in that information. Mm -hmm. And I was just really seeking to find ways to bridge the gaps or fill the gaps that I seen in the things being taught because they're, you know, in the, in the late two thousands, when I started to get into the tactical and the gun training and things like that, that industry, it was really not a lot of great stuff being taught. Like there was a lot of really, you know, hokey things being taught and there were some groups of people and some people that were getting YouTube famous and stuff that really shouldn't have been. Mm. Uh, they didn't have the, you know, they, they weren't bringing like real experience to things. And so it was good because it created this like groundswell of people that wanted to be involved and wanted to shoot guns well and stuff. So that's cool. But there was just this huge misinformation, not just gaps, but misinformation and in, in the whole attitudes and, you know, the sheepdogging and all the different things that were going on and, and I was just like, you know, I, I know things that are counter to what you're teaching here. So I'm just going to come out. And I told people from day one, you know, I'm not coming into this industry because I really want to be in it. I'm not coming in it because I want to be a famous instructor or anything. And my time here is limited. I'm not going to stay here for long. Like I want to go do other things. So. I'm going to come and like drop some knowledge in this thing for a little bit. And then one of these days I'm going to be gone and you guys are going to be on your own. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I'm kind of in that direction now, like this year, I haven't even scheduled any classes this year yet. So, and I don't know if I will, um, because I'm busy with other projects, but uh, that was kind of the, the, the impetus of it for me is that, you know, I had to take control of my own story and I couldn't deny my own nature and, and hide who I was anymore. And so I just took, I just took ownership of all of it. And that's when, you know, I catapulted out to the front of everything. And then that's, you know, everything changed at that point in my life got a lot better.
0: Actually, It's really interesting how counterintuitively, you know, you took, you took the power back, you took the narrative back and everything turned out actually better for you for doing so, uh, both with opportunity, both, uh, and with, um, you know, that, that feeling that you had inside of just living, you know, having to live incognito and not being, being able to express who you truly were. Um, it's, it's, that's it, a really interesting lesson. Um, you know, you could swap stories with, with people. Um, the, you know, the lesson holds true for whatever it is uh, that you're experiencing when you're living a lie. Um, so let's, let's get into, um s- Self-defense, civilian self-defense, because, you know, uh, so many people take self-defense courses. Uh, and again, your, uh, your book is just a complete eye-opener as to probably the waste of time that most of it is. Um, I've taken self-defense courses throughout my life. And as you rightly say in the book, most of that is martial arts training, right? Um, but also um, those that are, that are interested in learning how to shoot properly. Um, you talk, one of the big things you start off discussing in the book is having a mission when it comes to training for self-defense. So I'll quote you from the book. The very first step in any training is to identify the mission you will train for what is your mission i always ask this question first thing for every level course i teach it is amazing how often people cannot clearly answer that question so can can you elaborate on this this idea of I, you know every self defense class or course i ever took Never even thought about that net was never asked it, never thought about it, nor I would say 95% of anyone going for self-defense classes. So can you explain this idea about having a mission and what that, what, why is that, why that's so important?
1: Yes. uh, So your mission dictates your equipment. It dictates your gear. It dictates your preparations Uh, Your mission will detail your parameters, your boundaries, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. Like that's, that's really what that's for, right? And if you are operating without that, you get this big opportunity to make huge mistakes. And what I mean by that is like a lot, for example, a lot of people would come to me and say that their mission was to protect their families and themselves and you know just keep them and their families safe right and and i'd say you know and then i would present a, an opportunity to get into a fight you know in theory say you walk in and a guy's holding a clerk at gunpoint you know or and and then they're like well i'm gonna jump into that you know and it's like listen, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong and I'm not judging you for either would being willing to jump into somebody else's fight and not being willing. What I'm saying is that you need to have that clearly delineated in your mission statement beforehand, right? So if you're willing to get into a fight and risk your own life and risk your own future for someone you don't know, don't say that your only mission statement is to protect yourself and your family, because that's not true. And you (laughs) And then you're not preparing properly for the real mission that you're actually willing to do. So I'm saying like, just be honest. If you, and I tell people like this, like, if you told me you want to be Batman that that that's I'm Hey, I'm all for it. If you're being honest with yourself. Right. And you tell your family when you leave every day, you say, I might not come back. Cause I might die protecting someone else. If you're cool with that and they're cool with that and you're honest with yourself about it, then, then you've got your mission statement clearly put out. But if you are thinking one thing and willing to or go into another thing physically, then you, it's different than what you're thinking, then you have not properly prepared your mission statement and your, your training is not based on that. And beyond that, the problem with training that doesn't cover mission is that mission is it's made up of boundaries and parameters. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand where you need to stay within in order to stay within the mission, right? You can't go outside of that and expect to accomplish the mission. So if your mission is to be there for your kids, when they graduate college, you walk your daughter down the the aisle or whatever, if you go outside of the guardrails of that and go and jump into a fight that you know nothing about and you don't know who the actors are, you don't know what's going on there and you risk your life and you get killed, you failed your mission of being there, right? So, not and I'm not joking it was good or bad, like whatever, I'm just saying you simply failed the mission that you stated you had. You know, so the training that you have, that, that you take needs to have your mission built into the training. That's why there's a difference between military and law enforcement and civilian level of training. Uh, like take, for example, a very simple thing like, Law enforcement can pursue a violent felon. They can even engage a fleeing violent felon if they if they deem it's necessary. You as a civilian don't have those same opportunities. Like you're not allowed to pursue and engage someone who's fleeing from you in most states. Like in most states, the laws state that if if they have ceased the attack, you 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 cannot continue to issue deadly violence in that instance, right? Mm. So if you understand that, but yet you go and train to shoot people running away in the back, right? It sounds ridiculous, but let's just say, for example, right? Like your training now does not line up with the parameters of your mission. So you're training to do things that are not within your mission that might be within a law enforcement officer's mission, but not yours, right? So we have to be very clear what we're training. The training has to be built by the very the very criteria that the mission is based on. And that's how I, that's how I feel about it. And that's why I emphasize that to keep people out of trouble. And also too, it's a self-control issue beyond that. Like and I give examples in the book of people that, you know,
0: yeah, we'll get, I want to get into that. That's really important. That concept you just mentioned self-control, but I want to hold off on that for a second. Um, you know, cause you talk about, first of all, again, what you just said makes so much sense when you hear it now. Right, that oh my god, of course I should understand this, uh, but I've never heard anyone say it before reading your book. And you know, you talk about, you know, a, a lot of people romanticize this idea of you you want to learn self defense, and you know, you want to learn how to shoot, and you want to you want to be licensed to carry a gun or concealed weapon, so that if something happens, yeah, you want to protect your family, but you're also ready to jump in at a moment's notice to save someone else. Uh, Or, you know, or to be what you call a sheepdog. So you talk about Batman here, right? In your book, you talk about the the perils of the sheepdog trap. And I'll quote you here. You say, that whole sheepdog movement is something I personally have come to detest in the training and concealed carry world. It's bullshit, especially when adopted by civilians. So. I'm familiar with this concept, but for our audience, that might not be. First of all, what is a sheepdog? The sheep, the so-called sheepdog movement, and and why is it a pro- why do you see it as a problem?
1: I think that there's a well. First of all, the sheepdog analogy is really like it comes from the whole wolf and sheepdog thing, and you know now for context too. This book was written three to four years ago, and the problem isn't as bad as it was back then i think it was worse back then uh so some people may read this book now or in the future and be like what's he talking about it's not really well when i wrote the book it was it was it was a problem right yeah and so and it still is to some extent but the sheepdog thing is the analogy where the sheepdog is the protector of the flock and the sheep are you know dumb sheep that aren't going to protect themselves and the sheepdog is the courageous you know protector that steps up to the plate and protects them and And the problem with it was that it became this t-shirt slogan type of, of motto that was very easy to print on a t-shirt or, you know, put it on, uh, on, on your mission statement. And then you could just be this courageous, like you were in the courageous club now, right? You're a member of of the protector class. Right. And, whether you see yourself that way or not, to think of it in terms of, you know, now I'm a sheepdog, it starts to create a little bit, a, a few problems in terms of developing mission. Because you have to understand that, you know, if there's a law enforcement officer, like I just talked about, you know, a few minutes ago, there's very differences in what they're allowed to do or what they're obligated to do than what you're allowed to do and what you're obligated to do, right? Right. And we start to blur those lines when we start to have these like cliche analogies and these cool mottos and statements, like it starts to blur the lines of real logical, critical thinking. And so whenever we have something that's cool and like, it's like a, like I said, a t-shirt type logo motto type of thing, it's easy to adopt that and not do any critical thinking about what is my, what really is my role? right what am i really allowed to do what am i really obligated to do and so i would meet so many people that were like screaming sheepdog but had no idea what their what the laws of lethal force engagement were in their state that had no idea what their uh, capabilities were on a range like could they get a could they get a gun out from concealment and put a shot on target at seven yards in a second and a half or less you know like They had no idea what their real capabilities were. They had no idea what the real limitations of the law and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. They had no, so there was no critical thought put into it, but there was a lot of rah, rah put into the whole sheep dog thing. Right. And that's where we run into the problems. When you have things like that, it's easy to just put you in, to be honest with you, if you go back and listen to the early, um, the early adopters of the sheepdog thing that, that, that pushed it really hard. Their earliest talks and lectures were always to law enforcement only. And they, they, they typically had a negative um, they, they really had a negative view of people of civilians carrying guns because they weren't the professionals. Right. Right. This is very evident in their early talks. So if you go and listen to these, you know, these individuals, and then later, once they maybe realized how much money they can make by letting civilians join the cool club too, now now it's okay. Now the civilians are protectors too. You know, so right. so the whole thing was just brought on by a marketing thing that I I, I really didn't think was very, you know, is it was, it was very ethical. But honestly, it's the blurring of the critical thinking. And that's that's where my main problem is. And that you're, gotcha. not, you're not putting it in because you're just adopting some analogy and some, you know, t-shirt level motto that's like, there's no thought put into that. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: So, okay. Um Quote you here, whether or not you are highly trained, you say that avoidance and escape are objectives number one and two when it comes to confrontation, but that sometimes the fight is just unavoidable. You say you have no chance to practice avoidance. You're left with no avenue of escape. You must fight. And in that instance, your objective is to win. But, Varg, your definition of winning a fight is completely different from everyone else's, right? In in the book, you describe the categories that you see as being crucial to actually winning a fight, and again, this is what no one is really contemplating um, when they're out there, whether they're sheepdogging or, or not, whether you're taking a, you know, a martial arts class or whether you're really good um, and have spent years practicing uh, in whatever type of self-defense uh, that you've been studying. The reality is that, you know, you're just thinking about the fight and winning it, uh, but it's actually so much more. Can you can you explain for everyone what is
1: critical uh, when it comes to truly winning a, a violent conflict? Yes, of course. There's not just the physical fight. You, there's the legal part of it. There's the psychological aftermath part of it. There's the social part of it. There's the financial part of it. Like you've got these different after effects that a fight can you know, incredibly impact your life and change your life forever. And I say that having been someone who made the mistakes, who didn't have a clear mission statement that thought, you know, that I was automatically the good guy all the time and, you know, paid the price. My life was ruined in a, in a very real way. And I feel the effects of that to this day, right? Mm -hmm. 20 it was, you said earlier, 17 years, it's actually 27 years ago. Um, 27 years later, I'm still feeling the effects of this real effects, not imagined like real tangible things in my life are being roadblocked. Um, Last year I was roadblocked from having any COVID relief because of, uh, because of the criminal history. Um, And uh, up to this year, I am still Barred from becoming a USAW um, certified coach for US USA weightlifting because uh, because of felony status from 27 years ago, and I have a I have an athlete that's going to nationals in um, two weeks, and she's wow. ranked she's ranked probably third or fourth in the nation right now, and I can't be a sanctioned coach in that, and I have someone that's actually at the top of the at the top of the the pile getting ready to go to worlds, right? So. My life is getting very impacted by this to this day. So when I talk about this stuff, this isn't just something I dream up, right? Like this is me saying, listen, if you make these mistakes, right, you will pay dearly. And it doesn't mean like train hard and, you know, you'll win the fight. Like there's the, the legal part of it, which I suffered immensely. There's the social part of it where, you know, you can get ostracized, like if you get into a fight and you kill someone, yeah. people people change the way that they deal with you. Like it's you're not the same anymore, right? And and people are very uncomfortable with people that kill people. Like it's it's shocking. Maybe yeah, right? Like they they just don't like to be around people that have taken someone's life. And you can lose your job. Your job can have to cut you loose because being attached to you would be a problem at that point, right? Right. That's um, right. There's, there's so especially today in cancel culture, like if you kill the wrong person, you know, or what somebody perceives is the wrong person for the wrong reason, even if you win the legal fight, it will cancel your life out.
0: That's right. You no, know? and there right. are
1: people right now that are in legal battles right now that have gotten involved in some of the political things that went on and, and shot and killed someone and their lives, their families' lives, their mothers, their fathers all in hiding and their lives are just completely turned up down. They've lost their their jobs and everything, they lost their livelihood because the social impact, not just the legal, but the social impact will take your entire life away from you, you know? And then on top of all of that, you've got to deal with yourself in your own mind. The psychological part, you know, and I don't care how queued up you are, you know, when you deal with taking human life or deal with like extreme level violence like that. It can really affect your mind in ways that you you are not able to predict right now. You might think you can you might think you're okay you know and I can tell you from experience again from experience that you know for me I had uh, very combative sleep disorder problems like you know where I would wake up and feel like I was being attacked and I would be in these tremendous fights and I would tear up parts of my house before I would even wake up Mm -hmm. And this went on for several years after being released from prison, you know, and I still have to this day, very mild episodes of it where I'll wake up, you know, thinking somebody's coming and I'll, and I'll, you know, apparently stare at the door or something or like get, get ready to do battle and there's nothing going on. It's all, it's all in my dreams. And this is all after effects of like extreme violence, like being involved in, in hostile environments and, and extreme violent situations where I'm okay walking around during the day and I don't feel bad about what I did. I don't feel bad about the guy that I stabbed. Like, you know, I'm okay with what's happened personally and on a conscious level, but mm-hmm. unconsciously these things will find a back door into your mind. And that could be in your sleep. It could be through your family relationships. Like it, it there's so many different ways it can attack you psychologically. And PTSD is a very real thing. And Oh yeah. And, 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 You have to understand too, like, especially if you get convicted, but even if you don't get convicted, you know, if you're a combat veteran, you come back, there's like wounded warriors and heart foundation and all these places and all these groups and all these things that people are like really ready to help you. And, you know, there's no such thing like that for convicts. And there's no such thing like that for, you know, just average people who have been through a violent confrontation. Like people are not going to understand you. And you're not going to have a support group that's going to be there to pick you up you're on your own you're on your own and when you have to deal with this psychologically you know or the fear like so i know some people have a, like a violent engagement or they kill someone and then they can't even sleep without drugs for years after that because they're scared right. to go to sleep right like there's very real impactful things that happen to your life when you get into it you know and, and just because you're a tough guy and you you think you you're you're ready I can promise you that there are ways it can still get to you, you know? And so you have to think about all of those things before you're ready to engage.
0: Yeah. It's, it's again, like I said, eye opener stuff because no one's no one really is considering these things. Um, you know, they're, they're quick to act, you know, they're, they're, they're feeling good. They've got the rah, rah. Uh, but you know, even if you can win the physical fight, As you mentioned, the social, the psychological, the legal, these are whole nother level battles um, that you could lose uh, and lose everything on. And, you know, that's that's when you get into why it's so important to understand avoidance and escape as really your your first two very powerful options. And I'm going to quote you here. So you say, but why should we have to cower to bullies and arrogant, rude people? um and you say how this concept you say if this is how you're thinking and you and you look you know and you might be right right when you say look why should i have to cower to bullies and arrogant rupee why should you especially if you're trained properly mm-hmm. but you say if this is how you're thinking then you are very likely headed for a great loss there is a fine line between taking action in situations where you feel like if you don't act, you're a coward and true self-defense. Mm-hmm. You know, Varg, this is a tremendously important distinction. And you're the first one to say that people have the absolute right to defend themselves with deadly force from violent attack. And you're, you're even the guy who trains them to be good at it. But I'll quote you here. And this is really interesting. You say, nice people fall to the manipulator. The manipulator crumbles under the assertive. The assertive shrinks before the aggressive, and the aggressive have no plan for the assaultive. The assaultive are unprepared for the homicidal. So you, you bring up this, this quote, which that's, I think you, attrib- you attributed that to someone else, actually.
1: Mark McKeon, yes, that's that's his quote.
0: That's right, Mark McKeown. Um, Can you explain this? Why why is this another thing? For, forget about the other issues, like the legal fight, the 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 you know psychological trauma, all of it. But what that quote? Why is it important to consider this when when we're talking avoidance as opposed to to engage?
1: It's very. We can point to a very recent event, and I think we all know about the snow shovel murders, right? Where the, the couple yep. got murdered a couple weeks ago, just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And, and it was right in their street in the front of their house. Now that happened, and it's very, it's amazing the, the surveillance video we get these days. I mean yeah, it, it, it really is and everything. It's, we've got the whole picture. We got the whole story right there from start to finish, you know? And so the the husband and wife are out there. And you can clearly hear the husband saying, you're a pussy, you know, screw you. You ain't going to do anything. Like he's calling this guy terrible names. He's telling him he's not going to do anything. Uh, you know, he's basically calling this guy a coward and a punk and everything else. And so, so what he's doing in that moment is he's being assertive and even a little verbally assaultive, right? Mm-hmm. He's not prepared for the guy that just goes straight from. Okay. To homicidal. That's right. And that's what happened. Right. So he's a, so we think sometimes, especially when we're like tough guys, right. We think, Oh, I'm just going to tell this guy what's, what business is. And he's going to, you know, that's going to shut him up. What if that guy stabs you in your face? Like now you have to fight to the death, right? You have to kill this guy. And all you wanted to do was just tell this guy, put him in his place. And you weren't prepared to go homicidal. You thought you were just going to be assertive, maybe assaultive, maybe punch the guy in the mouth. And we'll have a good old-fashioned punch fight, right? But this guy pulls out a knife or a gun, and now it's a whole different deal because you weren't prepared for that because you thought that, oh, nobody's going to pull a knife or a gun. We're just going to, you know, I'm just going to punk this guy out. And this is what happened. This guy's standing at the end of his driveway. He's yelling these obscenities at this guy. And this guy's like, all right, I've had enough of your shit. And he comes down and shoots them both in the head very clearly. And he tells him when he shoots him, you know, he tells the guy he's shooting the guy the second time with the gun. And he comes back with a second gun. And he says, oh, I'm a pussy, huh? Huh? Boom, 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 boom. Right? He tells the woman, you should have kept your mouth shut. Boom. Shoots her right in the head. Very calmly. Right? And then he goes in the house and shoots himself because he realized that he snapped and he went over the edge and his life's over now. Right? Yeah. But that's exactly what we're talking about when we say things like that. Like you open the door. You don't get to pick who comes through. You think you can predict it, but you, you don't know who's coming through that door when you open it. And if you judged wrong, you're going to be dealing with something more than you're prepared to be dealing with.
0: Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is really why the mindset aspect of self-defense is way more important as a consideration than, you know, the, uh, you know, the physical stuff. Uh, and again, which is why you, it's why your book and what you're doing is, um, so refreshing because it takes a completely different approach. You say, quote, mindset is ultimately the reason that you got into the business of teaching self-defense and violence education. Weapons and fighting skills only make up 20% of a fighter's capability. The other 80% is determined what takes place in the mind so can you talk about what so let's talk about the mind in, in you know in this uh let's talk about violence of mind what makes up the factors of one's mindset that will play a critical role when you find yourself in a violent conflict
1: so i developed this idea based on my own experiences and then as I was studying and researching, I came across Colonel John Boyd, Lieutenant Colonel John Boyd. Right. And of course, he's most known for the UDA, but all that really interests me out about out of that whole body of, of of work that he produced was the orientation part of UDA. Okay. And he honestly felt like that was the he called it the Schwerpunkt, right? The 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 center. The, the most important component. This is where everything else emanates from. Um, and he worked with uh, Chuck Spinney and Chet Richards very closely. And I recently have been in contact with Chet Richards and I'm writing, I'm finishing up my second book right now. It's orientation. Uh, it's just on orientation, just completely on the mindset part of it. Okay. And so I was in contact with Chet Richards and I sent him my manuscript and he of course worked directly with boyd he was one of boyd's best friends worked with boyd many many years and was developing some of these concepts with boyd and so for me to take my interpretations and send it to someone like Chet, I was i was a little bit nervous you know i'm like nah. I wonder what's going to but he sent back the most amazing you know statements and he was like this is fantastic he's like you've really captured what boyd was trying to work on and you, you really grasped it and the stuff that me and him and wrote and Chuck's written about, you know, um, you're really doing great stuff with this. And then he, he like even shared a couple of private letters from Boyd to him, you know, and, and wow. some books from the. Yeah. So I got really lucky to be able to do that. And um, and so that first part of the second book that's coming out is that whole section that that he had some input on and, you know, and he really put his stamp of approval on it and it's it's basically this you know we have experience we've got culture we have value system we have genetics we've got parameters internal and external like all of these things create our decision making processes they 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 color and guide our decision making processes right how you feel about violence is largely Guided by your experience, your culture, the culture you were raised in, what you were taught about violence, your value system, how you value human life, like all of that guides your, basically your decision making, your and subsequently your actions in a violent con- confrontation or in any decision making process you'd be in. So, understanding how a violent mindset or or the ability to commit violence and deal with violence really well, uh, on both on both counts is basically how your orientation is put together. And so I did, I talk about this in a book about if you're dealing, like people have said erroneously in the past that human beings were not wired to hurt each other. And like, you know, and soldiers would fire over the heads of other soldiers and things. And I say it's erroneous because the data is not complete. First of all, there's no data. There's no, the, the, the U S military is not in possession of any, research data that's documented anywhere that says these things right interesting it was this was opinion that was based on you know some interviews that someone said they did however there are other people who have subsequently went on to do interviews and have documented lots of data but you're also talking to people who are like military and law enforcement have been engagements and things like that The prerequisite to be in military and law enforcement is to be law abiding, not be in trouble and like all this. So you're not talking to killers, right? So there's there's a problem with your data in the first place. So if you if you go on and talk, because I would I would read this and I'd be like, man, I don't have have they never met any real killers because I've known like several. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've known many many people that were just straight up killers and they are in prison for it, right? Mm -hmm. And so. I'm I'm wondering where is this coming from? Why why is there such a, a a disconnect here in this information? And I think it was because you're interviewing people who come from an orientation where their culture and their values are against violence and against doing bad things to other people and they're taught these things. They come from that better part of, you know, the world or better part of society. Whereas when you're dealing with someone who, you know, like me for example, um, I grew up immersed in violence and it was a, not only was it a, a way to gain glorification or, um, you know, praise and power or authority, but it was also uh, a means to get what you wanted or to, you know, to, to dominate your space. Right? right. So my culture and my values are very different by the time I'm 18 and I'm 19 and I'm landing in prison, my value system is very different. Like valuation of human life is very selective right? I can put you in there anywhere I choose to, right? You can be highly valuable or you can be as valuable as a dog, right? Mm So reaching that point by the time of you, you're a teenage kid is a very different thing than taking some like high performing good kid from school. He was on the all-star wrestling team and he's, you know, now he's in the military and he's a great soldier and he's, you know, he follows every order and he does everything right. Then you send him over there to kill people. And, you know, so now he's got, a a shock in his orientation because now he's been thrown into a world where it's very different in terms of selection of the valuation of human life and how culturally how they view death and how they view murder and things like that. So now he's thrust into it very quickly. Same thing with a cop. He's, you know, grows up pretty good life, not, you know, not anything real shocking. Then he's thrown into like a patrol situation where he, you know, is thrown into a violent world where, you know, the valuation of human life is very different than what he's used to It's culturally very different for him. And that's where PTSD really kicks in because there's like a rapid change in orientation, right? Like you, you go through an event that like rapidly changes who you are and how you feel about things and you don't know, then you come back from that world. You come back from, you know, uh, Afghanistan or Iraq, or you come back from prison or you come back from you know, and now you're trying to reintegrate and that's where the problems start to manifest because you can't go back home now because you're not the same person, you know? Right. And so there's a big issue there. And when we're dealing with orientation, you have to understand like, okay, like someone who's grown up and say, some of these neighborhoods in Chicago that have these in- incredibly high murder rates, right? Right. You can find somebody in those neighborhoods that's been in four, five, six gunfights, that's been shot seven, eight, 11. I know guys that were shot 11, 12 times you know that walk with a limp and like these guys are like you listen to hip-hop stuff these guys live the real life like that's the the lyrics aren't just lyrics to them Mm -hmm. they live that life they've got shot they've shot other people their homies have been killed like they've got people that are you know and so the problem is um that that is built into a culture over time and from a young age so culturally you're, you're acclimated and, and your value system is based on that culture. And now you have a very different way of seeing things. So your, your ability to commit violence from that atmosphere, from that world, from that culture is much easier, much more highly developed. Right. And then you take someone else who has to like rapidly acclimate to that, then they're going to have a little more of a psychological, um, rift. they've that they're going to have to reconcile and some people can reconcile it okay all right some people can't you know and so the orientation is your values your culture you and your genetics play into it too there's some things you don't have control over like there's some things that you just you just are who you are based inherently on how the chromosomes all came together for you right like and so there's all these factors that go in and when you make a decision that's what drives mindset because mindset is just basically a perception of the world in yourself and where you fit in at, in that world. And so when you have that, when you have that mindset, the stories you tell yourself about who you are, how you fit into the world around you, how the people around you fit into that world, everybody's telling themselves a story, you know, and that's, that's where the orientation really comes in. at. So,
0: you know, this is so important for someone who would find themselves in a, violent conflict that happened very quickly and they're facing someone who is part you know whose culture and values are such that it allows them to make a very quick decision about murdering you because you know everything that you've just described uh from an individual that's come from a culture where they're immersed in it do, the, the decision making process the OODA loop is quick right and they're gonna react or act while whilst the the average person who hasn't been through anything like that taking the self-defense course who even though they have the you know the, the tactical training is for the first time in their lives thrust into a, a, a violent confrontation all these things are going to be going on. You're suggesting the psycholo- psychological gears are going to be turning that might prevent them from doing what you did in that fight. When you were a kid, you stabbed the guy oh two two dozen plus times. Um, someone else might not have that decision-making capability to go that far and do those things. And, lose their life very quickly because the decision took too long to, for them to get over the, the realization that they have to take a life in order to survive. How in God's name do you solve this? So no, number one, right, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming the first most important thing is to understand what's at play, what's at stake, as you call it, orientation, under understanding that um, is is maybe half the battle but then okay I, I understand that now right i've read your book you've explained it now so i understand that how does the average person then fix the fact that they don't have they don't have 20 years um growing up in a neighborhood where they're sh- where it's kill kill or be killed how how do i how do i fix that so when the moment comes I can react properly
1: well first of all that's exactly what the second book's about <laughs> <laughs> what is
0: the okay what's the second book called do you have you have a title for it yet uh,
1: the working title is orientation um but we'll see we'll see what it ends up being but okay it's it's going to be orientation something about orientation in the title okay um the the title is actually getting a very serious seo research part to it so it's going to be a very thought-out title okay for the purposes of being found um but the but the the answer to that is you know and i go into that in detail there but there's there's initiation you know there's there's the stories that we tell ourselves there's you know the things that operate inward the things that operate outward the things that operate inward are you know their experiences the stories we tell ourselves who we are um, and I explain to people when I see things like you know in the in the gangster culture, there's this like archetypal template that is applied uh, very powerfully of like the gangster. You go into a dope house and there's like Tony Montana on the wall, you know and he's like the archetypal gangster that just takes everything, he's got all the women and he's, you know he just has people killed and like that's that's kind of the aspiration, like the, the, the high level you know, the archetypal template that drives that psyche. And it's very powerful, right? And there's like a whole glorification of this like high-level ex-con gangster type thing. And people are like, that's disgusting and stuff. But then I'll see those same people like have Spartans tattooed on them and everything they do is Spartan and Viking and, you know, and uh, warrior this and warrior that and Spartan this and Spartan helmets on your ARs and Punisher skulls on your Glocks. And I'm like, listen... You're doing the same thing. You guys are doing the same. You're playing the same archetypal template game. Then you're pumping your psyche up with a story. He's pumping it up with his story. You're pumping it up with your story. You're building your story off of these, you know, um, these crutches and these, these props that you use. And this is human nature. We all do it. Right. We're all all telling ourselves a story about who we are. And, and it's, you know, you either have a growth mindset or you don't. If you have a growth mindset, hopefully you're telling yourself a story about you're trying to be better all the time, but you can get into these traps, even if you're doing that, where you're like, you know, you're glorifying these templates that you become very cliche with. And you're doing the same thing as the bag, like, and in, in everybody's on this thing, like, oh, they're not like you that really you're all the same. You know, you just, at the, at the end of the day, you make s- different choices based on different cultural values, right? Mm-hmm. But you're you're going through the same decision-making processes. You're, you're battling the same thing with uncertainty. You're dealing with the same um, issues of creating, you know, bolstering and shoring up your orientation with, uh, you know, story and archetypes and experiences and trying to gain everything you can to back up the story of who you think you are, who you want to be. Right. And so that's what you're doing. And so the answer lies within that is to, you know, it doesn't take, it's not a very short process to change culture, but you can change culture. Right? Okay. You can reprogram culture. And, it, and I see it happen all the time because it's very clear when you watch guys who are, um, you know, all-star students in school and very mild manner they go to the military. 16 years later, they've done 11 years in special forces. Now they come back a completely different animal. That's right. Different culture, right? They've been reculturalized, right? Okay. Same thing with prison. You'll see the same thing happen there. You know, or same thing with cops. You meet a cop brand new, he's like kind of green and he's a little nervous and scared. You see him 13 years later, he's an asshole, right? <laughs> he's a different right. guy. Like <laughs> you know, and so and 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 not all of them end up that way, but that's just an example, like of he's reculturalized, right? So the orientation, the initiation experience, um, and you talk about someone that gets into that fast, unexpected engagement, you know, the problem is, is if that was their very first exposure, then that that reculturalization is going to happen like all at once. And that's a very traumatic psychological event for most Gosh. people. And if you have it happen like over time, especially if it begins at a young age, it's not as traumatic. And it's, it's normalized because it's, it's a very slow, gradual process and it's repetitive and it's all you ever knew. Whereas if you knew something completely different, you lived in a world where people didn't try to kill each other and things like that. You know, just here in my area, uh, last night, they found a girl on the side of the road that had been grabbed off of the road at nine o'clock in the morning, right. off of Main Street, knocked out, took her out in the woods and raped her and dumped her on the side of the road. Now, that girl's world just changed. She's, been, she, she's not going to live with the same preconceptions about people that she had yesterday, right? And it's going to be very traumatic for her. And I hope that the people that were responsible for that die an incredibly painful death, right? And my evaluation of their life is obviously selective, right? So culturally, how are we looking at that? Do, do we really value human life or do you selectively value human life, right? And so you start to get into these questions about, you know, that guy that did that is is worse than a diseased dog, right? To me. He's he's worth nothing. Right. And if you think, if you ask average people, do you the simple question, do you value human life? If their if there are immediate response is yes, you may have a problem someday. You know, right. If your if your response is, well, it depends, then maybe you're on the right track right? Culturally and value system wise, like, because if you have to make that decision to take somebody's life someday, if you are on that, that old way of thinking where violence is kind of a bad thing and, you know, all human life is valuable and things like that, this guy doesn't think your life is valuable. so what are you going to do? You know, now there's the possibility and people bring up this all the time. And it's very valid that, you know, untrained little old ladies defend themselves all the time with their with a little revolver right right and it's and it's true it happens and you know there's no explanation for why one person you know will react one untrained unexperienced person will react a certain way and another untrained inexperienced person will react a complete opposite way like there's no predictor that's going to tell us like you can't look at a the way they were raised and say, oh, that's why, because there's people that, you know, grow up in completely loving great homes that turn into serial killers, you know? So, mm-hmm. there's, so there's some kind of genetic thing going on. There. There's some kind of other thing going on that, that science can't really explain at this point. So when you think about people who are like panic protecting themselves and they're successfully panic in a situation or, or successfully just react in a situation with no training and just defend themselves, And there's times where people will come out of that okay and be like, yeah, that was scary. Whoa, man, glad that, you know, that guy didn't kill me. And they're like, fine, you know, and then there's other people that will panic and and protect themselves and then they will be complete wreck and have to go to counseling and they, you know, and their, their relationships fall apart and they just have all these problems, these lasting effects. And so the only thing that we can do to combat that and try to set ourselves up to not experience those negative effects is to begin to try to culturalize ourselves and understand the selective evaluation of human life and understand that sometimes we have to do things. Sometimes violence is the only thing that solves a problem. And that's just the truth. And there's, and the more violent a situation is the more likely violence is the only thing that will solve it. If you have an incredibly violent person that attacks you in a parking lot someday, I don't care how good of a speaker and how articulate you are and how compassionate you are. You're probably not going to talk that guy down. Right. The only thing that's going to stop him is somebody's going to put a hole in him that puts his clock off. Right. Other than that, he's going to go. And so when you realize stuff like that, and you begin to, you know, acclimate yourself to understanding that there are there are people in the world that are just that are just terrible, just like the girl that got raped yesterday. Like that that person that did that is an absolute animal. Absolute animal. And, you know, I have daughters and, and things like that, right? Like, and in, in then we have, we all have people that we care about that would be victimized by someone like that. Right. If you don't realize that someone's like that that, that, that is in your neighborhood like that, this happened just not too far from my house, right? This is, they're in your neighborhood. They're in your city. They're in your town. They might be on your street. They're there, you know? And if you don't realize that these people are there, then you can't really start to think about having to face that person someday. And you can't really start to build that orientation, that that acceptance and reculturalize yourself to include violence in your culture now, right? Because a lot of us were raised without violence in our culture. Like not me, but a lot of people, you know, that I've come to realize, it's just not in your culture, you know? And so if it's a part of your culture, that's a good beginning. If you're going to BJJ and you're, you know, you're, you're doing all the stuff. That's a great beginning. But just realize that don't tell yourself these stories like go too far down that rabbit hole. And then you have this good guy syndrome where you're not really thinking out what's really going on. You just think that no matter what happens, you're going to be the good guy and that's all it's going to go. You're going to be the hero. Like that's not how violence typically plays out. And you, so right. you need to think about it more deeply than that and be ready for all of those ramifications and all of those complications that happen from it. Um, And that's why I pushed that part of it really heavily because everybody else is about how fast can you shoot? How much, you know, how many submissions can you pull off? Like, you know, how much can you deadlift? And I'm over here, like, listen, the most deadly people I found in my life that I've come across probably couldn't deadlift much and they probably didn't train much, but they were extremely dangerous people and they were dangerous because their mind was acclimated to thinking and in the ways of a predator, and if you're not acclimated to thinking in the ways of the predator and understanding how a predator, you cannot be an effective counter predator, which is what you must be. That right. makes sense. Completely, completely. You know, you say in the book. So,
0: here's a quote. A couple of things um, that we'll we'll get out of this. First is you say, and this is this is when it comes to the concept of attachments. Okay, attachments, that's that's that's, you know, a piece that you discuss in the book as being crucial to, you know, the elements we're talking about, you know, culture, values, parameters, right, boundaries, attachments, quote, what are you willing to kill or die for? The parameters of the mission are set by your attachments in life. How far are you willing to go to protect them? As a kid in a violent home and upbringing, and as a young man in prison, I had very few attachments. I did not feel that same sense of clinging to family that average people fear. I actually hated my life as a kid and had the attitude that I didn't ask to be born into this fucking world, so why should I give a fuck? This made me extremely dangerous. It lowered my fear greatly to sometimes imperceptible levels. It is how I came out on top in some of the deadly and dangerous situations I was involved in. Retrospectively, however, the greatest effect it had was that it took the focus off of me and my inner world and put it directly on my opponent. You need to know this about your enemy. When you are toiling away in your own mind, worried about things that pertain to you, you are taking energy and focus away from your enemy. When you fought me as a kid or a young man, you were fighting someone who who absolutely did not give a fuck about anything except hurting you, even if I die trying. So you set up this duality of the power of attachments both the power of having an attachment that you're willing to die for if you understand you know truly you know what are you willing to do to protect those that you're attached to versus the power of not having any attachments Mm -hmm. so what i'm curious about is what what is more so can you can you Elaborate on this point, but also get into your thoughts on what is more powerful, or how do you ride that, you know, that fine line, um, you know, between having attachments or having none. You mentioned the most powerful example of understanding and controlling attachments can be learned from Buddha, right, the founder of Buddhism. Um, so there's this whole mindset thing going on in one's head around. I have attachments. I can draw great power from ensuring I'll do whatever it takes to protect them versus I have no attachments, I'm free to no, to no longer worry about what has to be done. There's a lot there. Can you can you kind of dive into that topic?
1: Yeah, and this is what I'll say, you know, I think to narrow it to like to summarize it, okay. I would probably put it like this. Attachments are, are what's going to really drive you in your training. It's what's going to drive your mission. It's what dictates your mission for the, for the biggest part of it, right? Like, what are you willing to kill or die for? What are you training for? What are you, what are you willing to step into extreme violence for? Uh, for your own life, for your own protection, you're attached to your own life, you're attached to your, your health, your well-being, you're attached to your wife, your kids, your family. These attachments you have in life are what you most likely are willing to kill or die for. So it's what drives your training is what drives your, your instinct and your intuition development towards being a self-defense, um, You know, being developed in self-defense. However, up until the moment that you're in the fight, when you get into the fight, if you're sitting there thinking as bullets or blades or anything is coming at you that could, that, that, that can damage you, that can kill you. If at that moment you're thinking about, oh man, am I never going to see my kids again? Or or, or, what's going to happen if this guy kills me? If you're thinking about your attachments, you're focused inward, you're not focused outward on your opponent and you're not going to win that fight. It's very unlikely that you're going to do well in a fight when you're not focused on your opponent because your energy and your focus is inward and you cannot win or do well or be effective when your focus is inward in a conflict. You have to be focused outward and dealing with what's coming at you, synthesizing new information as it's coming in, synthesizing it with the information that you already have, making new conclusions based on what's happening in front of you. Like all of these things, all these processes have to take place and they can't take place if they're disrupted by you being focused on, oh, I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose my family. I'm not going to see my daughters anymore. Now, sometimes that's what drives people. You know, there's stories of you know, I heard a story from, you know, Masada, you talked about a cop, opened a closet door, a guy shoots him in the face with a 357. And all he could think about was that he wanted to get home to see his daughter. So he killed the guy, right? He fought through it and he killed the guy. So at that moment, those attachments drove that guy, right? Right. Um, but he was, if you think about it, he wasn't focused inward. He focused that outwards. Like, he's like, I want to get home and see my daughter and you're in my way. Right. So that's, that's the difference, right? So you have to either be able to compartmentalize attachments in the heat of the moment and put them where they need to be so that you can do the job, the task at hand, or you, you let them drive you, but you don't allow it to take your focus away from doing the job at hand. And that's the big difference. So you have to think about it professionally and say, I have a job to do. It's quite simple. I need to do this job. And if you're motivated by other things to do the job, that's fine. But the focus has to be outward on the job. Stay focused on the task. Stay focused on the job. Do the job. Get it done. Then you deal with the attachments and all those things. That You open up that that steel case, that metal box that I tell people you lock that up in when you get ready to go to the fight. Do your job. Do your work. Do the things you're trained to do. Do what you know you're supposed to do. Then you deal with that stuff afterwards, right? Um, because that allows you to stay focused outward and stay focused on the threat, stay focused on the job at hand. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense thinking about it that way. It,
0: it really does. I think that's a a great explanation, uh, for what we must consider psychologically. Um, but it's, it, it also then relates to that whole issue about if that is truly what's driving you, you know, your attachments, if it's driving you properly, then, you, you also have to understand that that should be what drives you to stay out of the fight if you can, right? And av- avoid or escape as opposed to head into the conflict because if your attachments are that important to you, then unless your life is on the line through no fault of your own, then do what it takes to avoid being in that situation. Is that correct?
1: That's 100% correct. And we'll go back to the snow shovel murders, right? Like those people obviously didn't take the threat seriously enough to understand that they were jeopardizing their attachments by, by engaging in that verbal conflict, right? They, they, they allowed their, they, they allowed their anger and their emotions to push them out of the realm of self-control and into becoming verbally abusive because they obviously right. didn't think that that really was a threat to their attachments but it was because now they're done it's game over completely for them their attachments are all gone right
0: yeah and and this is again you know why I say your book is such an eye-opener because these are the things we should consider but we're not uh, you know even myself right um you know an aggressive testosterone filled individual you know um and, and my, i might not be thinking about these things right quick to get into an argument but you're not you're not really considering the these other elements now that that guy was a you know a, god rest his soul he 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 you know was he was being an idiot right um bullying the the other individual humiliating the other individual um wasn't con- but you know, you're just not considering these things. Even if you get into an argument where you're not doing that, you're just, you're just getting into a superheated argument and it can get out of control very quickly, but you're, you're not psychologically consider the orientation. Isn't there the orientation? I love this whole concept of the orientation. It is so important. Um, because, and putting your mission in perspective, um, again, open my eyes to the degree that, you know, I truly understand the concept now um, of avoidance, escape. You know, th- these are absolutely the keys. And now, you know, I want to get into one final topic because here's the crazy thing. I have another three hours worth of questions for you. <laughs> There's so much, right? But you've been very generous with your time, Varg, and we're coming up on the on the end here. And you mentioned something at the beginning that I found um, that I, I kind of stopped you from talking about because I kind of wanted to wrap with this. I want to talk about self control mm. because that's what we're kind of now talking about, really, is having that self control. Uh, so I'll quote you here Self control must be practiced outside of violence and training for it to be real in your life and your skill sets. From the samurai to the knighthood, politeness, character, self-control, loyalty have been standards in warrior code of conduct for thousands of years, for good reasons. It has long been considered the pinnacle of warriorhood to be able to set down the implements and language of war and attend social events displaying impeccable behavior and hospitality. This became the mark of success in both the personal and professional lives of warriors in nearly every civilized culture. It also allowed the fighter to fit into whatever environment he found himself in, the ability to operate across classes effectively. You say, you question, what does this have to do with violence in today's world? Everything. Can you please explain um, why it has everything to do, that concept of self-control and what I've just described there, your quote from the book, why it is everything when considering
1: violence in today's world? Yeah, self-control is, it's the only factor that really determines how successful you are with any of the things that you try to do. And what I mean by that is that things can go right. Things can go wrong. Unexpected things can happen. Like there's so many variables in life period, you know, like that not just in a conflict, but in life in general, that if you don't have control of yourself, everything's going to knock you off of your, your equilibrium. It, it, just the slightest thing happens and you're, you're angry or you're upset or you're sad or, you know, you just don't have any control over yourself or your your emotions or your thoughts anymore. That's the extreme, right? But there's there's ways to lose control without being just a complete you know out of control person. And I always back when I wrote the book and I started writing some of this stuff probably 10 years ago. Okay, there were there were really um, aggressive people who are marketing the whole, like, uh, you know, always ready to fight. That's, that's your job. Ah, You know? And it's just like, you can be totally ready to fight and completely out of control and that's not good. Right. Like being ready to fight is not the whole story. Um, Being ready to fight, being in control. And I always talked about combat mindset being one of self-control under all conditions. That's really the combat mindset that we're trying to achieve that no matter what, what is coming at you, you have control over your emotions. And one of the things that I talk about in classes, I'll get I'll get, uh, students of wide variety of backgrounds and, and experience. And some of them are very tuned up and shooting a long time, going to a lot of classes. They really feel like they're prepared. And also I'll, I'll ask a question to the class and I'll say, let's say you're in a public space. It could be a mall, restaurant, you know, a concert, or whatever. You're out with your family. You've got your kids with you. Uh, The people you care about are with you. You're holding your child's hand. You know, your your wife is on your side. Your kid's on the other side. And uh, an active shooter begins in that space. And the first shot hits your child in the chest, and you feel his hand slip away as he slips to the pavement. Now, you still have two, three other family members there that need your protection. Where's your state of mind right now? Are you still in the game? Or have you been completely taken out of the game at this point? Now, this is an extreme example. Right. But it's a very real example, and it's one that parallels to, like, you've got special operations units or military. If they make entry into a room, and the first guy that goes through the room gets painted across the wall, the guy behind him has to go step up and take the job. If he doesn't, then the rest of the team is going to be in danger. Right? And that guy that just watched his friend get painted across the wall knows that guy's wife. He knows that the joy that he had just having his baby last year, he's been to his holiday events. That's his best friend. That's his brother. He knows all of his intimate family uh, uh, attachments and things. He can't deal with that right now. He's got to do the job because he has other people depending on him behind him in that doorway. If he doesn't get through the door, get to the position, get the team in the room dominate the room, there will be a problem for the team and more people will get hurt. So, it's the same thing if you're out with your family and, and one of your family takes one of the first shots, are you now just sitting ducks or are you able to get to work and, and and try to, you know, terminate that threat, neutralize that threat, and then take care of what you can fix, right? And that's a self-control issue. That's an extreme example, but these are very real, you know, real considerations, right? Um, and if, if you could, nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. Nobody's perfect. And I lose control. And I have bad days, you know, and, and, but when you lose control, you open yourself up. And I'll give you a very good example. I, I just got into a road rage incident. Florida is extremely full of road rage. And the traffic is, is just unbelievable here. And I had somebody behind me at a red light or a stop sign rather. And he just, just flipping out. He's screaming at me because I'm not moving fast enough for him. Well, I got two trucks in front of me. I can't possibly go anywhere but this guy's having a really bad day. He's about to snap and he starts off with me and I'm not having a great day. You know? So first I'm like, just trying to ignore him. And finally he's like right up on my bumper and he's screaming and he's, he's raving his hand out, you know? So I roll my window down and I'm like, go around me motherfucker. If you don't like it. Right. You know? And so now I've incited him more. Right. So, so now I turn the corner and this is how, this is how violence works. This is why you don't get a say sometimes, right? Because I, I wouldn't have got it. All my preparation in the world wouldn't have saved me that day if he would have decided to do what he could have done. And here's why. I turn the corner. I get caught on the right side of the road between two trucks. I can't move. He runs up and blocks me on my left side. So now he's on my driver's side. He pulls up and I see him like now. I, I'll tell you, I had my window already down and I did prep my weapon. I already drew my weapon and I was prepared that if this guy was going to pull up and blast on me, we were going to engage in a gun battle at that point. And uh, so I'm already prepped. I already have my weapon in my hands under the line of sight of my door. And I'm, I'm prepared if this guy goes off, if he goes off the reservation. We're going to go together. right? So he rolls up and I look over and I see his hand raise up towards me inside the car. But guess what happens next? what the sun is glaring on the window just right that i cannot pid his hand i can't see his hand the sun completely blocked my view of his hand so now i'm stuck if this guy shoots his window's gonna shatter bullets gonna come my way and i'm probably gonna take hits i can't because i don't know what he's got in his hand right so and we're riding like this for like it seems like a long time it's not long in reality but it seems like a really long time because i'm like shit i'm stuck like i don't i'm not gonna i'm not gonna shoot because i can't i can't justify it so there we go with like parameters and mission and all the self-control stuff like i'm now i'm at a deficit i'm in a disadvantaged position this guy's three feet from my vehicle And he's pointing right at me behind a window and I can't see his hand because the sun glare is blocking my view completely. So then he waves down or he rolls down the window and it's his middle finger. And I'm like, man, guy, you're super lucky. I have a lot of (laughs) (laughs) self-control. You know, you just have no idea. Like, right. You know, but how unlucky was I that just that, just that perfect, angle of the window the perfect position of the sun all the factors came together that i was ready i was prepared i know how to shoot i know how to shoot from that position i'd done all the training i had all the equipment i had everything and guess what none of it meant anything because violence sometimes doesn't give you a choice
0: yeah it doesn't and then how interesting is it that in the end your mantra of self-control um, saved his life, and more importantly, saved the rest of yours. Mm-hmm. So, just uh, yeah, a very powerful example of what we've been talking about, Varg. It's it's been an amazing conversation. Um, I can't wait till the book comes out. You know, uh, the book on orientation. We got to have you back on for that. I can ask a bunch of other questions here and get into the new book as well. Um, where can our audience learn more about what you're up to, what you're doing? Uh, Where can
1: they find you? Uh, Right now, my biggest projects are, obviously, I'm writing the new book. Um, I just put the audiobook out for the first book, produced it, recorded it, did it all myself. And uh, that's done, so I'm writing the new book. So writing that is probably my primary project right now. My my biggest um, work that I'm doing in training is, my strength my strength and conditioning project that I have cognitionist training systems. Uh so it's CTSmethod.com and I have a lot of um, really awesome clients and across the country where I'm remote training barbell and strength. Um and there's uh you know, there's literally 27 years of experience in there um wow. that goes into that. So it's a it's a, a lot of fun. I enjoyed a lot. I think it's the foundation of where anybody should be because. Even if you go and learn, you know, martial arts or self-defense, if you don't have the chassis to deliver those things and actually stay in the game, none of it's going to mean anything. So the the biggest thing you could do for your own life is get in the gym, get strong and do it properly in a safe way. That's going to have longevity built into it. So that's where you'll find me for that. Um, In general, vargfreeborn.com is my main website. So links to my fitness and, and my gun training and stuff is there. I haven't put any Weapons training classes up yet for 2021, and I'm considering that I, I might put some up. I will be with a girl and a gun uh, this year. Um, I'm volunteering some time for them, and I'm volunteering some time for Ohio Tactical Officers Association again. Um, but outside of that, I haven't put up any classes, so keep an eye on the, the websites. Maybe I'll put some up, um, but I am scaling back on that a little bit so I can focus on these other projects.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, I urge everyone to, at minimum, get your book, Violence of Mind. It is a deep, deep look into uh, the psychology uh, and the circumstances uh, and the, the experiences firsthand, your own, of uh, violence and uh, how to truly understand what it takes to live in this world, survive in this world uh, in, a, uh, in a powerful and meaningful uh, and ultimately a, a way that keeps you alive with integrity and allows you to, uh, to be there for the ones that you love. Uh, and consider all of the all of the um, issues that go along with what might what you might face one day if you're not prepared for it. Varg, thank you so much for the work that you do, uh, and uh, and for what's to come. I'm looking forward to it. Thank
1: you.